Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. We are looking specifically at verse 6 today in context. You know, I hadn't intended to spend three weeks on this passage. Believe it or not, I had only intended to preach one passage, a running sort of commentary on verses 1 to 6 the whole way through. Uh, I was just going to spend one Sunday on it, and then I was going to move on to verses 7 7 to 12, but uh, I I made that decision, and then we came back a second week, and and God just impressed upon my heart that we need to look specifically at verses 3 to 5, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to just preach this passage on 3 to 5, and then then next week we'll be moving on to verses 7 to 12, and then this last week I sat down, I was working on 7 to 12, and more and more God just began to impress upon me that we needed to consider verse 6 in context, and so this is not the sermon that I had intended three weeks to set out to preach, but it is the one that the Lord has for us this morning. So we're going to read verses 1 to 6, and then we're going to pray, and we will, we will get to work. So look with me. Chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see, to take the, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we come face to face with this verse, Lord, and it is, a, it is a challenging verse, Lord, but at the same time it is so freeing to hear you speak with such clarity to these issues. God, I just confess in my own life I have struggled with knowing Lord, what the appropriate way to use my time in terms of evangelism is. And I've gone back and forth in my own heart, Lord, knowing how it is that I should try and testify to the world about, around me about your grace and your goodness. I pray, Father, that uh, in the same way that you're ministering to my heart through this text, that you would minister to the hearts of those who are gathered here today who also struggle with those types of questions and wrestle with those types of decisions. I pray, Father, that as your spirit speaks through your word, that you'd open our hearts and our minds, that it would be you, Father, that would give us clear direction, clear understanding in terms of who the swine are, who the dogs are, and how we can best use our time, the time that you give us on this earth, Lord. Help us to honor and glorify you with the decisions that we make. We love you, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a tough ministry, and uh, they had been working hard, and they decided it was time for a retreat. They were going to get away, and so they decided to head north. They are going to leave the northern regions of Galilee. They are going to head up north into a region known as Tyre or Sidon. They are going to take a break. So Jesus heads off with his 12 disciples. They are going to have a little bit of R&R, and as they're making their way through this town, looking for some accommodations, perhaps a nice, luxurious little spot there by the ocean maybe, Uh, The sea salt is in the air, and they're just ready to relax. There's a woman there who happens to know who this group of 13 is that's making their way through her city. And she's a mom, and she has a daughter at home who is afflicted. And as any mother would do, she knows that man there in that group. 
has the ability with a word to heal her child. Now, they're Jews, and of course, she's a Gentile. She's fully aware of the Jewish racism that's present. She knows that she's not welcome to go and speak to them, but she decides that for the sake of her child, she's going to throw herself at their feet, throw herself at their mercy so that her child might be healed. And so she approaches, and they're walking along, and she says, Jesus, Jesus, please help me. And Jesus just ignores her and keeps on walking. She begins to get frantic. She gets up. She chases after them. Please, please help me. My child is sick. She needs your mercy. She needs your intervention. And Jesus just ignores her. And the disciples are getting just a little bit weirded out because they know Jesus, at the drop of a dime, can heal her child. They've seen him do it over and over again. And she's creating a commotion. It's like, man, she's going to start drawing a crowd, and then we're going to have to minister to these people, and there goes our retreat. You know, then we won't be able to get the R&R we've been looking forward to. So they begin to pressure Jesus. It's like, come on, man. You know, Lord, just, just heal her. You know, just get, get, their, get her daughter healed and just send her away so we can be done with this because she's screaming frantically, please, God, help my daughter. Help my daughter. Finally, Jesus stops, and he looks at her, and he makes this statement, a powerful, compelling statement. This is recorded for you in Matthew 15. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered her again, saying, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now here's a guy that quite literally can just snap his fingers. He doesn't even snap his fingers. He just think the thought in his own head. And her child will be healed. He's wandered into a different part of the world, the Gentile world. She is begging for his mercy. She is begging for his help. She is asking for him to have grace on her daughter. He's done it a million times. But he makes a statement, it is not right to take what belongs to the children and to throw it to the dogs. Now that is a tough rebuke. That's the kind of statement that just slaps you in the face. She's from Tyre and Sidon. She's from the, the northern part of Israel. It's a region of the world that is largely hostile to Jerusalem and Jewish religion. It's a part of the world that has routinely been a part of invasions and incursions into Israel. As Jesus is speaking to this woman, he makes the statement, it is not right, that is, it is not ethical, it is not the right thing to do before the Lord to take what? My ability to heal, my ability to save, my ability to cure all that ails you, And to give it to you, I mean, he's not being subtle here. It's pretty straightforward. I'm not going to help you or your daughter out because you guys are dogs. I'm not going to take what belongs to the children of Israel and I'm not going to give it to you, a dog. Now, Jesus is actually doing something quite interesting here with this woman, challenging her faith. We'll see that as we go on. But as he makes that initial statement to her, he's clearly identifying her. 
he is clearly making a distinguish a, a, a difference. He's marking a difference. He's distinguishing between Israel, that is, the people who love God, the people who want God, and the people who do not. He uses the expression dogs. And that's the exact expression he uses here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. He makes the statement, and it is a command. If you look with me in chapter 7, verse 6, he says, do not give dogs. That's a clear imperative verb in the Greek. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He is saying, don't give the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Now, he's using images and metaphors that would have been clearly understood in Israel. They're not that far-fetched for us to understand today. All throughout the Old Testament, pearls have been associated. There's a connection between pearls and wisdom. Wisdom is said to be more costly than pearls, more precious than pearls, and there are numerous references throughout the Old Testament in which wisdom is clearly identified with pearls. In fact, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, when he's telling people about the kingdom of heaven, will make the statement, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price, and a guy finds this, this thing, and he sells everything he has in order to obtain it. And, he, and, and so we have this clear you know, connection between pearls and wisdom. The previous connection, he says, don't give what is holy to dogs. And that's obviously a reference to that part of the lamb, that part of the animal that you would offer on the altar as an act of sacrifice, Old Testament ritual, Old Testament temple worship, in which you offer a sacrifice on the altar and you, you know, you burn this thing and the smoke goes up to God. And he's saying, don't take that holy thing that you put on the altar and don't give it to the dogs. This is something that belongs for God. It's something you give to him. It's an act of worship. You don't just throw it to the scavengers running around in the streets. And then he reinforces that by saying pearls, that is wisdom, that is what is precious in God's eyes. Don't give that to the pigs. Now Jesus' statement here is very straightforward. Don't give what is precious to people who can't appreciate it. This is something that is holy. It's to be offered to God. A dog, he's just going to eat it like he would anything else. But then, in order to drive the idea even further home, he says, pigs and pearls. Don't take a pearl and give it to a pig. What would a pig do with a pearl? He'd eat it, right? He's not going to appreciate it. He's not going to pick the pearl up and say, oh, this is a nice-looking pearl. I, I think I might like to pierce my ears and put a pearl earring in it. You know, the pigs aren't going to do that. And he goes on to say, don't throw it to the pearls, or don't throw the pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus is instructing his disciples to learn how to make a distinction. And this is actually critical. It's critical to everything in the passage. You know, scholars look at this text and they say, ah, it's just a random hodgepodge of, you know, loosely connected sayings. They don't really go together. You know, he's kind of jumping from one thing to the next and talking about not judging. He's talking about, you know, how you go and get discipled and sanctification and pulling logs and specks out of your eyes. And then, and then now he's jumping to how we should be concerned not to evangelize people who, who don't really want anything to do with a God. It's just a random kind of hodgepodge, right? I don't think so. I think that these texts all flow together to form a single comprehensive idea. My daughter, she, uh, she's learning her colors. And uh, so we have like a whole bin of cars and trucks and, you know, Tonka type things, right? Now, in this bin, they're all different colors. You've got red, you've got blue, you've got green, different co colored cars. And so as we're teaching her how to 
identify the colors, we'll just pour this whole bin out of cars on the floor, and we'll say, okay, Chloe, we want you to take all these cars here, and I want you to put the blue ones over there, we want you to put the green ones over here, and we want you to put the red ones over there. And so then she has to look at these things, and she has to stare at them, and she has to learn how to identify them, distinguish between them, and to sort them. So it's a type of spirituality that requires sorting. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He makes a statement, judge not that ye be not judged. So the context is very clear. When it comes to making judgments, when it comes to making opinions, there is some caution that needs to be exercised. And then he goes on to unpack that. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So he's clearly talking about identifying things, distinguishing between different types. Then he moves on to helping your brother who's caught in sin. And yes, you're called to do that. You are called to pull the the log and the speck and all this sort of thing out of each other's eyes. But remember now, different sins, different people require unique and different approaches. And most important of all, as he's saying here in the context, you got to make sure you get the log out of your own eye so that you will see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, being able to see clearly, being able to identify is important, and then he rounds the whole thing out with don't give what is holy to dogs. In other words, the common theme throughout the whole text is you need to learn how to sort. You need to learn how to identify and differentiate and distinguish between one type and the other. That's what Jesus is saying here. As you look at verse 6, He's clearly moved from the way things ought to be within the church, within our community of people, our family here. He has moved from what happens inside the church to what happens outside the church. And what happens outside the church, in terms of your efforts in sharing the gospel with people, helps you grow spiritually so that you are a better member of the church inside the church. And I don't want you to lose sight of that. That's very important. This is a missionary text. When it comes to sharing the gospel with people, you have to identify those who are receptive to it versus those who are hostile to it. Now, missionary theology is the only theology that you and I should know. It's true. It's the best theology. It's the only theology. In fact, you don't even understand God if it does not move you to becoming a missionary to trying to share the gospel with those around you. Scholars in ivory towers who sit and lecture in classrooms all day long, they look at this text and it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus say this right after this? But at the same time, you read the missionaries, the guys that are actually out on the fields, they come to this text and they say, no, this isn't confusing. This isn't a hodgepodge. This makes perfect sense, okay? They get it. If we're going to grow to become like Christ, well, what is it that Jesus is? He's God in the flesh, He's God that's gone on a mission to earth to save us. So when he is talking about how you and I are to interact with each other, the only way we understand the context of anything that Jesus is saying is when we first understand it, that he is a missionary kind of God with love for lost and fallen humanity. You look at the New Testament. 
you've got letters from guys like Luke and Peter and John. Out of all of those guys, Paul writes the most, the, the major, he, he writes most of the, not most of the New Testament, but he's the, the primary author of much of the New Testament. And you think to yourself, okay, why is that? Well, obviously God chose him and appointed him to write those letters. He, he spoke as the Holy Spirit, you know, moved through him to produce those letters. But he makes a rather interesting statement. In 1 Corinthians chapter, 10, chapter 15, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, and he's comparing himself with the other apostles. He says, I worked harder than any of them. He says, yet it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He goes ahead and points it back to the grace of God. Now, out of all of the apostles, be it Peter or John or any of those guys, Matthew, uh, you know, work your way through the 12 there, Paul, he's the missionary. I mean, those guys obviously went on mission too, but a good chunk of those churches that are planted are Paul's churches. He is the one that is going out and actively and aggressively taking the name of Christ before the Gentile world. He is the one running risks. And as he says clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the one working harder than all those other guys, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. And you look at the things that he wrote, and we all scripture is wonderful, all scripture is God-breathed, is you know, written by the Spirit of God. But you look at the letters of the New Testament, they're all written to churches, and they all, the ones written by Paul, all contain some of the deepest, most powerful, most profound theology. The book of Romans in particular. I mean, in no other letter do you find a, a, so much just great, deep teaching. Number one, the gospel. What is the gospel? How do we get saved? Number two, he unpacks and he unfolds for us throughout the book of Romans all of the attributes of God. He touches on everything. Then he talks about the relationship of Israel to God. He, under, he unpacks the interworkings of how God's plan throughout history has always been to redeem people and save people for himself. All of this within this letter. Now, is there a problem in Rome? Absolutely not. Is he writing to Rome saying, hey, you guys got some major issues? No, he's not. The whole purpose of the letter to the Romans is simply this. Hey, I want to go to Spain, and I would like for you guys to help me. The whole purpose of the letter to the Romans is to introduce himself and to say, hey, you want to go on mission together? Do you guys want to help me as I'm making my way to Spain to make God famous? And you look at all the letters in the New Testament, they're all addressing some major shortcoming within the church. But the one letter that really, really unpacks deep, deep, solid biblical truth, the most comprehensive letter in all the New Testament that it really addresses salvation start to finish. And the whole purpose of it, the whole point of that letter is simply this. I'm on a mission to make God famous. To understand God, to really know him, you have to imitate him. You have to strive to be like him. And as you strive to be like him, at its most basic, most simple form, you have to try and make his name known to those who do not know it. You have to bring people who do not have a relationship with God, and you have to bring them to a point where they do desire to have a relationship with God. If you feel that your spiritual life is stagnant or boring or dry, can I just ask you one question? Are you laboring to introduce people who do not know Jesus 
to a relationship with him. Because there is nothing more frustrating. There is nothing more challenging. There is nothing more backbreaking than trying to take the gospel to people who need it but don't know it. And at the same time, when they actually do trust in Jesus, and you've had the privilege of being a small part of that, there is nothing more rewarding. There is nothing more satisfying than a person that at one point in time was damned to an eternity in hell and now rescued, reconciled, and adopted into the family of God. Jesus, as he's talking about how we are to behave within the church, in terms of our sanctification, in terms of making judgments, in terms of pulling logs and specks from each other's eyes, it's only natural that that should culminate in a missionary command. And specifically what he's saying is, you guys are going to have to discern who wants the gospel from those who do not want the gospel. They're out there. This isn't my term. This is the scripture's term. We can refer to them as dogs and swine. Dogs and pigs. What Jesus is saying here in verse 6 is that the gospel should shape us, number one, and number two, if it's precious to us, as we say it is, if it's something that we care about, which we, we do, then it ought to shape our perspective of others who do not value it. You know, when I was young, I was about eight. I can recall clearly. I will refer to this incident as the Great Horse Massacre of 1988. My brothers and I, we were playing indoors, something we're not supposed to do, but it was like 40 degrees outside and, you know, 100% humidity, it's Texas. And so, you know, there's playing ball outside where you could die of natural causes. Or you could move it inside into the air-conditioned family room and you could play ball inside. Now, my parents were out on a date night. They were out, you know, having dinner. And so they had left my sister in charge. And my sister at that point in time was, you know, into boys. And so she was on the telephone in her bedroom with the door locked. And we, the four of us boys whom she was supposed to be supervising, uh, were completely unsupervised. So you have a choice to make. Do we play baseball outside where it's hot? and we could die? Or do we move it inside where it's air-conditioned and the kitchen sink's right there if we get thirsty? You know, it's not a far walk to get some water. And so, you know, obviously the choice we made, my mom, from the time that she was a little girl, like maybe eight or nine years old, had been collecting these porcelain horses, okay? These, yeah, you know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> I mentioned porcelain and there's a gasp. <gasps> Yeah, yeah, it's, that's right. That's where we're headed. Um, she, she put them high up on the mantle because, you know, we're short. We're young kids. We can't reach high up on the mantle. So, you know, you're thinking logically this is a good place for these beautiful, you know, I don't want to say priceless, but they were fairly expensive, uh, you know, and they were family heirlooms. She'd been collecting them since she was a little, little girl, so they were priceless in her eyes. Beautiful. They were, they were porcelain. Some of them were ivory. Uh, and some of them were glass. And, and it's just this beautiful set of just 
ornate horses they had been given to her for birthday gifts and Christmas gifts, and all, you know, all along the way she'd had a thing for horses. You, you, most of you have noticed I've got like a little Coke bottle collection up on my kitchen cabinet. So it's kind of the same thing for her. And she had put them on the mantle above her fireplace. So there we are in the house with our aluminum baseball bat and baseball, and uh, we're thinking we'll just swing gentle and just kind of gently hit these balls, you know, and, and uh, we've got like the couch is first base and the TV is second base, and, and we've kind of got our little diamond there laid up inside the family room, and uh, I don't, you know, and this is true, I'm not just saying this, okay, I don't remember who it was that was swinging the bat, but I promise you it wasn't me, okay, I, I, I wasn't the one that did this, but I was a part of it, okay, so I'm, I'm not trying to say I'm innocent in the matter, because I, you know, I had a hand in the thing. But uh, I think I was on first. I, I really, based on my recollection of what happened, I think I was probably either on first. I don't know if I was running or if I was, you know, the, the first baseman, manning first. I'm not sure. But I was at about first. And uh, my brother lobs it, gentle, nice, easy inside pitch. And my other brother just, you know, we forget, you know, as boys sometimes that we're inside. And he just, bam, line drive straight over his head right into, my parents had this picture framed on the wall of the, is a photo of the Grand Canyon. Bam, smacked into the picture, glass goes flying. We're like, oh no, we're in trouble. And then the picture kind of dropped and kind of went like that, you know, as it comes off the, uh, the hook. And we, oh, and we look and we see the porcelain and we're like, oh no, we start running. Nah, it's like all slow-mo. And of course it fell before we could get there in time. And you know how it all happened. The porcelain and the ivory and the glass shattered all over the place, fell to the floor, broke all over the brick hearth, and it was the great horse massacre of 1988. <laughs> now, my mom, my grandmother passed away. Now, this is a prelude to something deeper and more profound, so just stick with me, okay? My grandmother passed away when I was, when I was six, and she had given some china this is the real family heirloom. Some really hundred-year-old china dishes. Really ornate, fine, exquisite stuff. Like the finest china. And it, there's a lot of history, you know, and a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, stories that are wrapped up in this china. And my grandmother, when she passed away, she gave this china to my mom. And my mom was thinking of taking the horses off the mantle and putting the china on the mantle, but she hadn't done it yet. And so we destroyed these horses. We obliterated them. Now, we got in a lot of trouble. Don't misunderstand. There was a reckoning, okay? They got home, and, you know, we had, we had, some, we had a talking to. And so... Um, <laughs> So we had a talking to, and, and, but at the same time, my mom, up until this point, my mom was thinking she would put the fine china, that is a family heirloom, up on the mantle. But after we massacred the horses, you think she's going to put that china on the, on the mantle? No way. No way. You know what we heard from that moment forward? Every time my mother and my father would have a significant discussion about things pertaining to the house. My mom would say to my father, I want a china cabinet. 
you know, something with like bulletproof glass. No, she wasn't, you know, not, not quite like that. But, you know, it's a special woman that raises four boys, okay? So she, she wanted something that she could put her china in, that she could show it off. It had to be beautiful. It had to, she wanted like cherry wood, beautiful stain. She wanted to accentuate, to accessorize the china. She wanted to show the china off. This is not stuff you eat off of. This is stuff you show to the world that, you know, has stories and memories and family tradition and legacies all wrapped up in it. And so so she inherited this stuff from my grandmother, and she wanted to show it off. But at the same time, well, all the horses just got slaughtered, so I'm not about to just throw this stuff up on the, on the mantle. So my father, he was instructed over and over and over again, you're going to either build or buy me a china cabinet, you know, and it was all ornate, you know, she wanted it with the, the glass panels and all this sort of stuff, and it had to lock because she didn't want us, you know, opening it and playing, you know, frisbee or whatever with the china plates. And so she, she wanted a china cabinet. Now, I remember this distinctly, and this is the point I want to make. My mom never wanted a china cabinet until one, two things happened. We slaughtered her horses, and she inherited the china. Now, she knows the china is precious. It's a family heirloom. You don't replace this, okay? It's not like the horses. There's a lot more history and a lot more meaning to the china. But it matters to her, it's precious to her, and she cares very deeply for it. So when she sees us slaughtering the horses, which she also cares about, but to a lesser extent than the china, she is going to take precautions to make sure that the china is protected. She is. And there's a reason for this. Number one, she values it. That value has shaped her. It has profoundly impacted her so that now she wants a china cabinet. She never wanted a china cabinet before. That was never a big thing. But now it's crucial. Okay? So there's a secondary sort of subsidiary desire that comes into her life as a result of inheriting this precious and amazing china. Now, I hope you're following me here because this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. When we inherit the kingdom of God, which he promises to us. When we trust in him, when we repent of our sins and place our faith in him, we inherit something that is precious, that is priceless, that is valuable. And we say we care about it. Why would we take something so precious, so valuable, and throw it to the dogs? If we care about the China, if we care about the gospel, and we understand the world around us largely does not, and there are a few who are not only just unsympathetic but openly hostile to the gospel, why would we take something that matters so much to us and is so precious to us and just throw it out there for people who hate it to abuse it. And can we say that the gospel really is the most precious thing to us if we just throw it out there for abuse? You know, a couple of months ago, uh, we had a family kind of get together and, and we were talking. You know, in our family, we were like, when did we ever actually eat on that china? Never. We never ate on the china. We were talking, we're like, well, did we, no, no, that, you know, we never ate on this stuff. We never ate on it. We ate on it one time. 
we put our heads together, we racked our brains, there was one moment in which we ate off of this china. And I know what you're thinking, the announcement of the first grandchild. No, no, that didn't, that didn't muster, okay? We're still eating paper, you know, like that's how it's gonna, we're gonna use paper plates. First grandchild didn't matter. It's good, you know, my parents are happy to have the first grandchild, but you know, it's not good enough for the china. Uh, marriage, you know, you bring the girl home, like, you know, I'm thinking of asking her to marry me, you know, you have a little dinner, sit down with your family, you know, introduce the girl to the parents, so to speak. Do you think that warranted the fine china? Nope, nope. We ate on regular plates, you know, it, it got us off the paper plates, but, you know, it, it didn't get us onto the china, so to speak, you know. The one moment that I recall ever eating off of this china uh, all my brothers and sisters, we all agree, there was only one moment. Was when I told my parents that I was going to go into ministry. It had belonged to my grand, great-grandfather before me, and he was a pastor. And he had two plates in this china cabinet that, uh, you know, he, some of you are aware, my great-grandfather planted First Methodist Wichita, and then he studied the Bible and was like, eh, I'm not a Methodist, I'm a Baptist. And then he planted First Baptist. So he's got, he's got two plates in this cabinet. We've got two plates that, you know, sometimes they have those commemorative 25 anniversary plates. In our China cabinet, we've got these two plates. It's 25 anniversary of First Methodist. And it's, then we also, right next to it, have the 25 anniversary of First Baptist, Wichita, Kansas, right there. Bam. And so that's quite a story. And so I come home and I say, Mom, I feel like God is calling me into the ministry. This china is kind of like locked away in the holy of holies, right? It's like you can't break out the china, you know, you can't get to it. But the only time we as a family ever, ever ate off of the china, I went forward that Sunday at church and I, you know, I surrendered to the, to the ministry, came home. We opened the cabinet for that. And to this day, so my mom's getting older and she's, got a, she's preparing her will and looking at all this and all the brothers are whispering, who's going to get the china? And everybody's convinced it's going to be me. It's like, out of all of us, you were the only one that was able to go behind the Holy of Holies. So, you know, you're going to get it. You know, you're going to get to China. You're going to inherit it. Because we were not able to crack that veil. So, you know, like, it's yours. I don't think so. I mean, I think my older brother, Charles, is more likely to get it. But anyway, it's kind of a, we're all whispering, who's going to get the fine? Because it's precious, you know. And, and the truth is, I wasn't the one that hit the ball and shattered the horses. So, you know, I, I, I have a, probably have a little bit of, you know, my mom's eyes, a little bit higher appreciation. But there's two things that I want you to see here, okay? Now that we're all laughing and having a good time, I need you to see this. Number one, the gospel should shape us. It should open the door to all kinds of secondary thoughts and secondary ideas of how we are to present that gospel to people in a way that is honoring to the Lord, respectful of the pearl of great price we have, and yet learns to distinguish between those who value it, who treasure it, who want it, and those who do not. We have to learn not to take what is precious and holy and shove it down the throats of those who not only just don't care about it, but hate it, are opposed to it. Now, some of us are sitting here and we're thinking to ourselves, this really ought to be a liberating text because there are a few of us in this room, we have loved ones, we've got family members, we've got people that we work with, but most specifically family members who are not Christians. And we think to ourselves, you know, I, if I had just lived a more holy life, 
If I had just lived more righteous lifestyle before them, they would see the value of the gospel. They would see how precious Jesus is to me. And if I'd actually lived my life like Jesus was actually precious and, and not done all those silly things before my brothers and my sisters or your, your aunts and your uncles or whoever your relatives are that you're hoping to come to faith, you're thinking to yourself, if I just lived my life perfectly, then they would have come to faith in Christ. And so sometimes we beat ourselves up and we get guilty and we're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done it. And it's true, we should live lives that are holy and pleasing to the Lord. But I need you to understand that Jesus did not even win all of his own brothers and sisters to himself. Okay? Now he is a sinless, he lived sinless life, he lived a flawless life. Jesus never did anything wrong. The scriptures are clear. He had brothers and sisters. At one point in time in the Gospel of Mark, it says that he's ministering and his family comes and they're like, you know, you're crazy. You're telling people you're the Messiah. That's just lunatic, just crazy talk. Just stop talking. Come out. And Jesus makes a statement. They say, hey, your brothers and your, your family's outside waiting for you. And he says, you know, who, who is my family, really? It's people who do the will of God. Now, that text ought to tell you, and again, over in John, the Gospel of John, it makes a statement. He, you know, his brothers come to him, and they're even mocking him. They're like, you know, if you really are the Son of God, you should show yourself openly to the world. And then he says to them, well, you know, my time has not yet come. And so, obviously, there are people in Jesus' family whom he did not necessarily win to faith in himself which tells you that there are people out there that despite your best efforts, because let's face it, none of us is going to be like Jesus, but Jesus was like Jesus. And Jesus didn't win everybody around him to faith in himself, even those people that were his close family relatives, all right? So don't beat yourself up thinking, if I had just done this, or if I'd just been like that, or if I, you know, if I'd lived my life like this, if I hadn't made that mistake, you don't have to feel guilty for the fact that people don't necessarily come to faith in the Lord. At the same time, we are called to take the gospel to them. And the second example I want you to notice is this. Jesus on the cross. He's dying. He's got two thieves on either side of him. One thief is mocking him and making fun of him, saying, okay, you know, you say you're the king, you're the son of God. Okay, come on, save yourself, get yourself off this cross, and hey, while you're at it, why don't you save us too? You know, and he's just kind of just ridiculing him, making fun of him. And then the thief on the other side says, you know, this is the Josh Clay Camp paraphrase. He basically says, man, shut up. Like, really? Like, you're, you're an idiot. We deserve what we're getting, and this guy hasn't done anything wrong. And then he turns to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Now, let's just put ourselves there for a second. If it's you and me, all too often, what we would do, if that was us, we would think to ourselves, okay, I've got just a few more minutes, maybe an hour or two left on this earth. I want to make it count. He's clearly saved. Check that guy off. But this guy over here, he's clearly not saved. So you only have so much breath. You only have so much air in your lungs. Every word is excruciating. Every word matters. If it's you and me, he's good. I'm going to focus my efforts on the lost guy, right? What does Jesus do? He never says a word to the lost guy. He's struggling. He's gasping for breath. Every word at this point is an act of worship and devotion. It is extreme effort for him to say the things he's about to say. He's got a choice to make. I try to convince this guy to give his life to me and to trust in me and to get saved. Or I can give words of comfort and encouragement to this guy that just trusted in me. 
If it's you and me, all too often we're plagued by guilt. Well, yes, I should. I should probably make some sort of effort here to win this guy. But that's not what Jesus does. With his dying breath, he gives hope and encouragement to people who treasure him. And he never says a word to the other guy. So hear me, church. Number one, none of us is like Jesus. Jesus didn't win all of his family. Don't think you're going to, you know, if you had just lived your life a little bit better, you'd win everybody in your family. Not necessarily the case. Number two, we've got to be critical. We've got to discern who it is that regards the gospel as precious, like we do, versus those who do not. So how, how do we do that, Josh? What, what's the uh, process? I would like to introduce you to the U5. Some of you are like, okay, U5. What is this, some sort of a cool robotic toy that you've invented that will guide us? No, no, it's not from Star Wars. Ten years ago, there's a professor by the name of Tom Rayner who conducted a really extensive survey of North America, included both the United States and Canada. He wrote a book on it called The Unchurched Next Door, and he developed a scale identifying their spiritual receptivity. Called it the Rainer Scale. U1, unreached person one, category one, is the most receptive person to the gospel. Unreached person number five, category five, U5, is the most hardened, unreceptive, unresponsive person to the gospel. Most challenging, most difficult person. Now, what is interesting is that most churches, their evangelism ministry is targeted towards reaching the U5. We, all of us, live in fear. We live in fear and guilt. Number one, if I was more holy, if I was more righteous, if I was more just like Jesus, I could win people to Jesus. That's the first thing we tell ourselves. Number two, we say, well, if I just knew more Bible, if I just had more evangelism training, if I just had more understanding in what the scriptures are teaching, I'd be able to answer every question, I'd be able to address every concern, I'd be able to deal with every objection, and then people would come to faith. So we are tempted to something like omniscience. We tell ourselves that we just possess the same degree of understanding, basically, as God. If we just had the total mastery of everything that, say, Jesus had, then we would be able to win more people to Jesus. That is not what you are called to do. Jesus says very specifically, don't give what is holy to the dogs. He is saying the ministry that all of the churches in North America target the majority of their resources towards, reaching the most unreachable, hardened of skeptics, that is not where your efforts are to go. He is saying, don't give what is holy to the dogs. In other words, all of these churches that are focusing all of their time and all of their energy on reaching the most hardened, most difficult of skeptics, Jesus is saying that's not where you should probably spend the majority of your efforts. And we see it lived out in his life. Let's look at this U5. Tom Rainer, he, he conducted a survey of over 10,000 participants. And from that, he extrapolated data. A number, a significant number were from Canada. So this is applicable. It was published in 2003, so it's only 10 years old which basically means it's still valid. His research findings still matter to us today. And do you know what he found out of the population of North America, including both the United States and Canada? He found that there were certain traits that identified the U5. There are certain characteristics they had in common. Number one, 
they're all extremely wealthy. They, all of them, and we can't make a hard and fast connection. There's no absolute correlation between how much you earn and spiritual receptivity. There are people that earn over $100,000 a year who are still very receptive to the gospel. Okay? But what he found was, even though there's no absolute correlation, there is a connection between people who earn $50,000 and more. There is a correlation between how much they earn and how receptive they are to the gospel. Jesus himself makes the statement, oh, I've lost it in my notes. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The U5s have two traits pretty much in common. Number one, they're very wealthy. They make at least $50,000 or more a year. Number two, they're very well educated. In other words, they've got so much money, they've never been in a tight spot where they've had to depend upon God. Number two, they're well educated and they have a philosophical, theological sort of framework that they utilize to sear their conscience against the truth that there is a God that created them. They're well educated, they're versed in the doctrines of evolution, and they're financially well off They don't hurt for nothing. Those are the two common traits that they had. But more significantly, the U5s, uh, they're typically over the age of 50. They're an older generation. I don't know that that's an exact and hard and fast rule. The longer any of us lives, the more resistant we become to the gospel if we don't respond to it earlier in life. So I think... Typically, a person over, who's over the age of 50 who hasn't responded to Jesus at this point, you know, they were over 50. They've already lived a life. They've already hardened themselves in certain practices and certain beliefs. As the old saying goes, it's very difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. And so, not that they're beyond reach over the age of 50, but that the U5s, those who are most antagonistic and most hostile to the gospel, they're typically over the age of 50. They're well-educated. They're financially well-off. And for the most part, they're an older generation. The other thing, this was startling. They are not likely to attend church ever. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, but wait a minute. This is an unreached category. These are people that go to, don't go to church. So what do you mean the U5s would never go to church? Most lost people, most people who do not trust in Jesus, believe it or not, actually do go to church on occasion. They go for, like, family members' baptisms. They go for Christmas functions with family. They go for Easter, things like that. They actually will attend church, not a lot, but maybe once or twice a year or for some sort of special occasion. They consider going for a a wedding or a funeral as participating in a church sort of service. And so the vast majority of people who are not believers still will go to a church at least once a year, give or take. That's what the research shows for some reason. But the U5s will not. Not for weddings, not for burials. This is stuff that does not matter to them. They won't go for Christmas. They won't go for Easter. They are hardened against ever stepping foot in a church. They refuse to go for any reason. The U5s do not pray. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that doesn't really, you know, they're, they're not Christians. Yeah, but believe it or not, they are non-Christians who are actually trying to be completely sincere to what they believe. A lot of people who are not Christians, who do not go to church, still pray on occasion, still seeking some higher power, still looking for some sort of divine providence to take action in their life to help them out on occasion. But you fives, they say, we don't believe in a God, and not only do we not believe in a God, but we refuse to ever even pray to something we don't believe in. In other words, they're sincere unbelievers. 
They're hardened unbelievers. The other thing is that the U5s have a very condescending view of the Bible. It is not spiritual. It is not true. It is not even historically accurate from the U5s perspective. And the U5s have a very negative view of the clergy. Their perspective is that pastors or priests or ministers or individuals of this nature, that they're basically just using a myth, a fairy tale to snooker all the rest of us and to make money off of all the rest of us. That's kind of their, their perspective of pastors. But the most defining question was belief in the existence of heaven and hell. The U5s are completely committed to the fact that this life is all that there is and that there is nothing beyond this life worth thinking about. Now, by contrast, on the other side of the scale, you have the U1s and the U2s, those individuals who are more receptive to the gospel. By contrast, the U2s pray they're about 75% likely to pray regularly, even on a weekly basis. In other words, there are people out there who don't know Jesus, but still like to pray to something. The U1s, those who are most friendly to the gospel, they're 90% likely to pray. So you take 10 people, and 9 out of 10 times, one of those people is going to pray to God on a weekly basis who doesn't even know God. And that's significant. In terms of having a condescending view of the Bible, the U1s, 60% of them, 60% of the most receptive people to the gospel said that the Bible was truthful and it was a source of spiritual guidance and that it was, in fact, supernatural. That the Bible itself is something supernatural. The U2s, the second most receptive, 36% of them believed that the Bible was truthful and supernatural. With regards to the clergy, the pastoral ministers in the, in, our, in the country, U1s, less than 10% of them have a negative view of the pastors that think they're actually pretty good guys and hard workers and role models. The U2s, 20% of them, less than 20% of them have a negative view of pastors. With regards to the belief in the existence of heaven and hell, the most defining question on the survey, 100% of the U1 category, the people who are most receptive to the gospel, 100% of them believe in both heaven and hell. They know they're real. They know that they're out there. The U2s, the second most spiritually receptive category, 95% believe in the existence of heaven, and 85% of them believe in the existence of hell. The most receptive group of people believe in an afterlife of some form, heaven and hell. The second most receptive group of people, most of them believe in an afterlife of some form. How do we categorize a U1 as opposed to a U5? How did they come up with this scale? The first question that they asked as they conducted the survey was, just tell us what your thoughts on church are. What do you think about church? What do you think about the people that go to church? And you had the U5s, which would be like, those people are nuts. They're a bunch of crazies. They're psychologically out to lunch. Very harsh, very condescending, very bitter language. The U1s, by contrast, would say, church seems like a really great place. I'd like to go there if only 
someone would invite me. You break down the demographics, and you know what you find? You add the U2 and U1 categories together, and it accounts for 38% of the population. Four out of 10 people are a U2 or a U1. Four out of 10. The U4 and the U5 category, you add those two together, the most hostile to the gospel, you know what the percentages are? 26%. 25% of the population, basically, is hostile to the gospel. 40% of the population is very receptive. When Jesus says, the fields are white unto harvest, he's not lying. Are there swine and pigs out there? Absolutely. Are there a lot of people out there that want to know Jesus and have not yet been told? Way more, way more of those people than there are of the antagonistic, hostile, swine, and dog category. There are way more people out there who want to know about God than people who absolutely hate him and do not want to know about him. There are way more. I'll just show you one category in particular. The U5 category. The hardest, most hostile. It's the guy you don't want to run into. It's the guy you don't want to see because if you tell him about Jesus, he's going to mock you. He's going to make fun of you. He's probably going to get angry. He may even get violent. Do you know how much of the population those people account for? Less than 5%. In other words, out of 10 people, you're not necessarily even going to get one that is hostile and angry. You go to the 20 out of 20, you'll get one out of 20. But within that same group of 10, 4 out of 10 want to know about Jesus. They want you to tell them about Jesus. They are waiting for someone to invite them. The survey and the research shows that basically you got the U1 and the U2 category, and they actually want to go to church. They actually want to have friends from church. They want to be involved in that kind of community. But the biggest thing that sets them back is they are terrified of walking through the door and not knowing anyone. They have tried on multiple occasions to walk through the door, but just kind of chickened out at the last minute. And all they really need is someone to invite them, meet them somewhere, and bring them to church. That's all they need to show up. Four out of ten, and less than one out of ten will abuse you if you tell them about Jesus. Less than one. Jesus says, don't throw pigs, don't throw pearls to pigs. And most of us in this room, we won't even throw pearls to people who deserve it because we're terrified of meeting a pig that isn't really in the majority. Most of us, we are afraid and we are terrified because we think these people are all over the place out there and they're not. And most of us say we can't go tell people about Jesus because we need more Bible, we need more education, we need more understanding of apologetics and these types of things. And the truth is, you're preparing to encounter a person that's not that dominant out there. You're afraid of telling someone about Jesus that for the most part, they don't even really exist. They're a small, small demographic. We don't need more Bible. We don't need more apologetics. And don't, don't misunderstand me. I love the Bible. Don't hear that the wrong way. I love apologetics. We don't need more of that. What we really just need, church, is to be faithful with the knowledge we have to look over the fence, to see our neighbor over there and say, hey, do you want to go to church with me? Ah, uh, you know, and they might give you the runaround because we're Canadians and we're noncommittal that way, okay? I get that. But you can ask a couple of questions to get to the heart of the matter. Hey, what do you think happens when we die? 
That simple question right there will tell you, it will tell you whether or not they're receptive. Ask them another question. What do you think about church? Like, what's your perspective on church? And their answer to that question will tell you as well whether or not you need to be aggressively pursuing them. I had lunch on Friday with a wonderful lady from our church. Love this lady. She is so sweet and so kind. Her name is Ashley, Ashley Seitz. We're sitting there talking. She came to faith two, two years ago at, at, you know, through our vacation Bible school efforts. And do you know what? She had for the longest time been poking her. She used to be next door neighbors with the Oatways. She had for the longest time been poking her head over the fence in the backyard there, seeing all these kids hanging out at Life Group on, on Thursday night and, and had been thinking, man, something fun is happening over there. I'd like to go to that. She's thinking in her head, man, I wish I could be a part of that. And you know what? Melissa pokes her head over and says, we're doing a kids club. You want to come? You want to come be a part? And that was all she needed. And if you've ever had the time to get to know the sites, Ashley, she is just a wonderful, amazing person. She's just, just a sweetheart. There are hundreds more of them out there waiting for you to ask them to come to church than there are of the dogs and the swine. True story. Yesterday morning, I'm walking around my house. It's Saturday morning. I'm kind of muttering in my head. I'm rehearsing the sermon. One of the perks, I guess, of living in the pastor's house is you get a prelude. You get a preview of the sermon that's about to be preached. Lydia says, oh, what are you, what are you muttering about? So I kind of, you, know, uh, you know, I started to preach to her, you know. And she hears all this data about these U5s and U1s. She goes to work at Starbucks. There's a lady there at Starbucks that she works with. Dan, uh, clear blue sky. She just says, Raina, you want to come to church with me? You know what Raina says? Love to. Just like that. Love to. Just like that. No protracted, prolonged conversation. No, like, well, I, you know, what do you think about this Jesus? Can I talk to you about Jesus? No, nothing like that. She's curious. She's wanting to know more. She's a friendly girl. Raina, you want to go to church with me? Would love to. Just think in your heart right now. Who's out there that would love to come to church with you if you just thought to ask? Jesus says to this woman, I only give what is meant for the children of Israel to the children of Israel. And the woman's response is, yes, Lord, but even the dogs can feed on the scraps that fall from the children's table. It's in Matthew 15. And she, he says to her, woman, your faith is great. She understood that she was not a part of the people of God, but she wanted to be so badly. She was so eager to be a part of the people of God that she was even willing to be considered the pet that just scraps around under the table. Anything to be a part of the family. So she says, yeah, you know what? I'm okay being a dog. 
at least then I'm still there. I'm still with you guys. I still get the scraps that fall. And he says to her, your faith is great. Bridge Baptist Church, there are people out there with great faith. They're hungry and desperate to come to be a part of the people of God. And perception is not always accurate. You think they're a dog, but they are hungering to be a part of the family. Let's bow for a word of prayer.